and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. I'm Ian Wielden, a senior lecturer at Newcastle University and host of this series. Today's guest is Dan Hudicek, the head of collections at Beamish Open Air Museum. In our conversation, Dan and I talk about his role as head of collections at Beamish and what that looks like on a day-to-day basis and how he's contributed to the remaking Beamish project which includes the building of a new 1950s zone within the museum. Dan's first degree is in classic car restoration and theatre from McPherson's College in Kansas, where following graduation he stayed on in his first professional role as Director of Automotive Restoration Development. Following a relocation to the UK in 2009 to undertake his MA in Museum Studies at Newcastle, Dan describes how his placement at Beamish led to a role helping with a store move. He's gone on to undertake a number of different roles at Beamish as Registrar, Collections Project Officer and Collections Officer before he moved to his current role as Head of Collections. This conversation was recorded on site at Beamish in May 2023 and is an edited version of a longer chat. It was recorded in one of the newly constructed semi-detached replica council houses from Red House in Sunderland and I've included links to the various projects and organisations that we talk about in our chat in the podcast notes so you can follow up anything you want to know more about there. I'd like to thank Dan for taking the time to talk to me about his career path so far and for showing me around the site and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Okay, so thanks for joining me today, Dan. Um, we're sat here in one of the new buildings, the new old buildings from the 1950s. Um, could you just start by introducing yourself and and where we are, and, and then I guess talk about what you do, what your job is? Yeah, so uh, my name's Dan Hudicek. Uh, we are sitting in uh, one of the semi-detached 1950s new build houses that uh, will be opening shortly here in uh, our 1950s expansion. Uh, so this is a house that we have uh, recreated based on the original and working with the uh, the family who were the first to live in this house. So it was part of a competition actually to nominate a house that would be replicated at the museum. So Esther and her children have worked quite a bit with us to get all the wallpaper selected, get the objects selected, try and work as many of their memories and their original furniture items and such into yeah. the space. So I am head of collections here at the museum. So my team and I look after pretty much anything to do with uh, collections and collections management. So from our loans, conservation, documentation, all the way through to installing the objects here in the exhibits and then helping with the aftercare as they are in open exhibits and working with the um, engagement team both to design the engagement stories and help maintain that as we're open. So obviously we've got exhibits that have been open for 50 plus years now and they they, they can take a hammering from visitors. So uh, looking after the objects, replacing them as needed and continuing to develop the stories that, that we show in those spaces. So it's a very, very broad range of things that the team yeah. covers. And we're such a big museum that you know, we cover a lot of different subject areas, different time periods. You have to kind of be that chameleon on any given day that you you never know what you're going to be doing. So it's a lot of 
a lot of different things that you need to draw on for it. Um, so as a collections person, how does it feel when you've got all of this stuff out and people are in the spaces and you using, I guess, is perhaps the right word? Yes, yeah. So it's it's a, an interesting kind of headspace you need to be in because as a collections person, you're generally very, very protective of the object, particularly physically. Um, and so having visitors handling the objects is really the opposite of what you would normally be kind of thinking about. But it is so vital to the engagement for visitors to be able to get up close to the objects and to handle certain objects. Um, so we do have to spend a lot of time both kind of conditioning our brains, but also very strategically thinking about what objects can be handled and how we can position them so that the visitor will be able to know whether they can or can't handle it without having to have a sign or a barrier or anything like that. So um, generally speaking, everything in the room we're sitting in here is totally fine for a visitor to, to handle. Either it is robust enough that it's very unlikely to get broken, or we might have a dozen copies of it knowing that it is breakable, so we have uh, replacements for it. In some of the other time periods and exhibits across sites, there are more objects that need a bit more care and attention for them. So even just looking here at what we've got with the, um, the cabinet, we could lock the more fragile objects behind glass right. in that. So the, um, some of the items that are a bit more robust can be sitting out open, and then the more fragile ones can be hidden. But there's strategic little things we can do as well, like um, using a clothes horse that is screwed to the floor so nobody can move it, that when you walk into the space, it looks correct. And it's essentially a velvet rope, but doesn't look like a velvet yeah. rope. So we do have to be very um, strategic and very cheeky sometimes, really, with that, on um, trying to subtly protect um, the more at-risk objects. Some things just could not go out safely, and so that's where we would keep them in the stores or have them in the open stores yeah. um, where we can get some of the stored collections and hopefully tied into these exhibits then so um, we can make those links for people to be able to tell those wider stories. But yeah, it's as a collections person, it's it really is a, a stretch for me sometimes to, to <laughs> let standing, go. Yeah, standing cringe exactly. in a room when people are... <laughs> yes, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, it's interesting to watch visitors in the spaces and see what they interact with and how they interact with things. We've, we've done a few kind of test rooms like this to, to just see what visitors pick up on, both physically picking up, but also the, the stories that they pick up. Um, we called one of them Through the Keyhole, which we purposely put objects in that we thought told a very clear story. And then we wanted to see if visitors would get that story without someone telling them. Yeah. And very mixed results with it. We were surprised. Um, but that was great for learning what we could do in these spaces. Um, we use engagers in costume in all the exhibits to, to speak with the visitors, but they won't necessarily be in every single room at any given point in time. So we need a room to essentially stand on its own without a staff member there. So we have to have the objects that can tell that story or at least um, draw the visitors in. We, we hope that visitors can kind of see themselves reflected in the exhibits or at least recognize things from their own lives in there. 
And, and so we try to have kind of one or two key objects like that in every exhibit so that they hopefully can make that link and, and go from there. So much of the engagement that happens in the exhibit is between different visitors or, you know, a grandparent and a child that have come together. Yeah. And so, you know, the child might recognize um, uh, a telephone and have no clue about the dial on the front of it. And oh, God, feeling old. Exactly. Old. Yes. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> But then, you know, that you can make that intergenerational connection and you don't need a staff member there necessarily. So to be able to then have that small child actually dialing a number and hopefully we are putting a, a telephone exchange in here for visitors to use as well. So they can ring from the police house to oh, wow. one of the other buildings. So it's not just spinning the dial, you would actually then be able to speak to someone on the phone. It might be another visitor, so who knows what the, the conversation might end up being. Um, <laughs> But yet, to, to create those intergenerational things, that having that uh, ability to handle the objects is, is so much better than just seeing it behind glass. But yeah, it's, it presents some challenges for... So me. is there such thing as an average day for you? No. Uh, I mean, that's the, the best and the worst part of my job is no two days are the same or no two, you know, from the morning to the afternoon. Uh, like. I mean, last week I was at a conference with a lot of the CEOs and directors of museums around the country. And then the next day I'm French polishing furniture. And then you know, the next day I'm up to my knees in mud trying to dig an object out of the ground that has just been donated to us. And you, you just are constantly flip-flopping between so many things. And particularly now that I'm, I'm managing a team of people, they're you've got all the different strands of work as well. Yeah. And I'm usually having to kind of muck in with each of those strands as well. So you're, you are just always flipping back and forth. I mean, here yesterday we were dealing with an issue of um, how to put the light poles in the ground because there was a minor construction problem with it. And so, you know, we're all sitting there in high vis scratching our heads. And then 20 minutes later, I'm reupholstering some furniture. So it, <laughs> it's, it's not the average collections yeah, yeah. job. I mean, it, it is really challenging, but actually that is a lot of what draws me to it, that I, I would be bored with something that was just the same thing over and over and over. Um, it is nice sometimes to really sink your teeth into a, a bigger chunk of things. Like a few years back, we were doing a massive data migration because um, I manage our database as well. So I'm the, the administrator for the database. And we were moving all of the different collections groups onto a single database. And so you know, you're filtering through several million cells of data to try and unify everything before it gets migrated. And so that was a couple of weeks of just staring at spreadsheets nonstop, which drives you a bit crazy. But at the same time, it's, it's a fun thing, as I said, to sink your teeth into. And when you finally get it done and get it right, hopefully, um, it's really rewarding with that as well. So so yeah, I love that that variety. And same with our collections, that you know, it's not I'm not just dealing with quilts or just dealing with transport. It's a little bit of everything on any given day. With a project like this one, the 1950s village, as this accelerates towards opening, does this just eat your time? Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm technically not on this project, whereas other people are fully on this project. Realistically, about 90% of my time is spent on this at the moment. Right. Um, so it will, it, it, it ebbs and flows. So we've got these six exhibits that are about to open in a couple of weeks time. And then there's another 
two, three months before the next set opens. And then there's roughly six months before the, the big tranche after that opens. So it, it will kind of come to an end for me in a, a few weeks time. It'll relax a bit. That's when we do all the documentation. So I say relax, it's, it's just focus on something else just <laughs> as important at that point. Um, but yeah, in a project like this, especially one of this size, it, it really does ebb and flow. And it's just what, um, what you focus on any given day or week is. So it, it can be challenging because you are, you're wearing many hats at the same time, but yeah. you're also very quickly changing between them. So getting your head in the right space to be thinking about what you need to be thinking and to the best that you could. Um, I mean, for instance, right now we are, we're focusing on the, the semi-detached houses and the police houses next door, whereas the, the cinema is roughly nine to 12 months off. So in my head, that's far down the line, but the construction company needs answers to design questions immediately. So you are not wearing that hat, but every now and then you need to jump in and you need to be fully up to speed on everything with that. So it, it really does kind of <laughs> throw you all over the place. And Helen, my boss, she even more so because she's the essentially ultimate decision maker on that. So she needs to be up to speed on every single thing all the time. Even if she's not here, she well, needs to... The last time I was yeah. here, there was this conversation about borders in, yeah. this, in this room. Which in you fact, can see yeah. it's, And I didn't realize the borders and... were going to go all the way up as well into the corners. So yeah, but it looks amazing. You'd never know all of those decisions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's... Place. Even if you are kind of part of the project team, there's so much of... Um, you know, a duck in water that above water level, it seems like things are taking over and below water, it's just thrashing yeah. about. And I think all of our different strands of the project that we're in are all that way. So as long as you're all, you know, thrashing in the same direction, you eventually get there and it, it turns <laughs> out well. And I mean, something Helen always reminds me is that, you know, you will be the only person that knows it's not quite right. And it's hard to let that go sometimes. Yeah. Most of us are perfectionists and that's part of why we've, gotten to where we are and are doing what we do and we we don't want to compromise on quality or on the um the amount of stories that could go in so uh, i mean an, an exhibit like this is an amalgamation of that whole family stories but also all of these objects came with their own stories from different donors and we're trying to tell the wider story around um all the people who would have lived in houses like this so there's only so much you can cram in physically or um, with the stories, uh, particularly for opening, and then even in the future, it's, it, but you always want more. Yeah. And there's always this amazing little nugget that you know in the back of your head or one person told, told you it years told ago. You. Yeah, yeah, and it's, but it might not fit with the overarching story that we're telling in the space. And we don't wanna just shoehorn things in for the sake of it, but, having it there in the back of other people's minds is really kind of what we need to do. So whoever the engager is in here, there might be a visitor talking about another story and that little nugget can then come out. So it's it's something we want to have there ready to go, um, but isn't necessarily at the forefront of it. So yeah, you just always want that little bit more, that little bit better, that little bit faster. <laughs> and, so how many people do you manage now? Uh, the team's fairly small at the moment. We unfortunately um, had redundancies through COVID. Um, 
and we've we've been growing again. The collections team is currently five people. Um, it, it could definitely do with more, but it could always do with more. Again, yeah, yeah. You give me a hundred people and I'll still have more work to do because it's just <laughs> the, the depth and the quality of the work that you do can always scale up further. Um, but yeah, so that is the, the core collections team at the moment, but then there's a lot of crossover with the project team um, for remaking Beamish. And uh, there are a few other teams that do what most people would think of as collections work, but it for us makes a lot of sense for it to be a separate team. So for instance, the transport, most of the collections care that happens for our transport objects is not within the collections team, but our policies and procedures work alongside each other. Yeah. So it, it makes sense if it all overlaps. Yeah, exactly. If a bus out on site is driving 30,000 miles a year, the, the people doing the maintenance on it are probably going to have a more robust system for that than me writing a, a basic conservation plan from my desk. So as long as we're working together on that, it's it's totally fine for some of those things to be to separated out like that. So yeah, it is kind of hard to draw, a, you know, this is the collections team yeah. as it is. It, um, it's it's kind of unusual, isn't it, the way that everything overlaps, but I guess it has to with for these kinds of projects. Yeah, um, and likewise for the size of the museum. I mean, we're 400 plus acres, we've got 50-ish um, buildings and roughly 100 buildings that have storage of, of objects in it. So, you know, most museums are at most a dozen um, buildings or exhibits and stores within it. So we, you know, it's the, the size of our staff, but also the physical size of the exhibit we, or the, of, the, of the site. We've had to do some slightly unorthodox um, staffing structures and uh, policies and procedures to, to counter that. And likewise, being an open-air museum as well, there's challenges that we face every day that most museums would be kind of the, the random occasion, like we were saying before, with visitors handling the objects. Like that is the norm and it's at the forefront of our thinking. Whereas in a traditional glass case museum, that's probably only for learning activities or something like that. Um, so the object choices and um, when and why you'd be doing it is gonna be very, very different. So yeah, we, we do get some unique challenges uh, with that. So did you always want to work in collections? Is that something you've always aspired to? No, I, to be honest, I never really knew what I wanted to do. Like I, I would say I'm a generalist and that actually lends itself well to collections work um, because I'm overseeing everything basically. You need, you need to know a basic level about everything to be able to at least ask the right questions or connect with the right person who then is the, the, the best person for those items. So, so yeah, growing up, I mean, I, I love history, I love music, I love baking. I, I've done a little bit of everything in, um, in the past and I never really had one key thing that I was aiming for. I have always loved history. I've always loved um, mechanical things. And I mean, my mom hated it because I always disassembled my toys to, <laughs> to figure out how they worked but I never put them back together because I didn't care anymore. I just wanted yes. to know how they work. So there was always, you know, You'd remote control need. cars. Yeah, so they, 
they moved me on to um, Meccano, which was probably a bit better because then it forced you to make things. But yeah, it's I've I've always just been curious about how things work and why they exist and and what they're doing. So it it works for a museum setting as well then. Um, and when it comes to collections care, having that curiosity and that that knowledge of, you know, oh, there there might be something hazardous in this or. Um, reverse engineering the, yeah. the, the well to, to transport something sometimes you have to disassemble it so the the projectors for the cinema they were from Durham Uni in the projection booth at the very top back of the building they'd been in there for 50 plus years they'd modified the building after they'd gone in they were not coming out in a single piece so it was either we rip a hole in the roof and get a crane to lift them out or disassemble them and carry them down several flights of stairs and um, move them back here and put them back together so they could theoretically operate again. So that's where that childhood curiosity yeah. is absolutely perfect sometimes. Um, and same even for the stores here that you know, we fill the building with, with objects and then another building gets built next to it and you don't have the access anymore. And 20 years later, we decide it needs to be an office space and <laughs> Dan, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we've had, we had one, the, uh, the sweet shop when they converted the space above to offices, had to disassemble a bunch of um, Cadbury's chocolate factory equipment, yeah. uh, posted out the window onto the telehandler and lift it down because that was the only way to get the things out without cutting a hole in the building. It's and there's mind blowing. There's still a couple bits that we've just boxed in. So yeah. <laughs> the people in the office don't even necessarily know there's still objects hidden away in a cupboard with no door. <laughs> so were you, when you were interested in history, you know, maybe at school, were you just, just going along with whatever was there, were you kind of exploring other things outside of school or was it, was it primarily academically driven? Uh, primarily academically driven. Um, maybe in later years, I'm, I'm definitely one for going down a Wikipedia wormhole that you, you look something up and then four hours later you realize you're still <laughs> chasing the, the links through. Um, yeah, there wasn't really a, a driver per se. I mean, I tended to take more history courses at um, high school than some of the others, but I've, I've always really just been quite random in my selections. So like university, my two degrees are theater and classic car restoration. That's what my bachelor's right. degrees were. And well, I kind of understand the classic car restoration given what you've said. So yes, far. yeah, well, but then theater here, yeah. it, it, it lended itself perfectly yeah, to Beamish because I was I was more on the um, design, lighting, um, stage design, and and that sort of things as opposed to the acting. So it's essentially kind of exactly what, what we're doing here. Yeah. We are, I mean, it's not quite a, a film set because it is an actual building, but it's a lot of the consideration is, must be very similar. Exactly, attention yeah. to detail, adding things together to create dialogues there. Yeah. Yeah. feed into the, a bigger narrative. Yeah. And so then the um, the classic car restoration side, it's actually um, the way they set up the course, you could have uh, a few different uh, minors with it. Uh, this was in the States. And so I did uh, history as part of that. So there was a much bigger research element and uh, you had a lot more history lectures then with it. Whereas yeah. other people went more into business administration 
or um, graphic design or some of the other directions with it. I mean, it's, it's a bit like the, the Newcastle University course, which I did as well, that you all kind of have the core basis, but then some were doing more uh, art museum type and some were uh, general heritage sites, whereas I was the museum studies and tried to focus as much on the collection side. I think at that point, yes, I probably knew I was more of a, a collections type than a curator type. Right. I, I don't have that depth of knowledge of any given area to be able to really be a, a, a curator in anything. So I think you're doing quite a lot of curating though. Yes, yeah, so I have little bits of it, but it's not the, the super in-depth one specific. It's in research. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's, there's definitely a place for those sorts of people and I rely on them quite a bit. But I mean, even just, again, looking around this space here, you've got furniture items. So you would want somebody who is an expert in furniture, but also you've got things relating to shipbuilding. You've got all the um, domestic kitchen items. And so somebody who knows the deep history and could look at any of those um, pieces of packaging and instantly tell you that's 1945 to 1953. We need that, but it isn't necessarily, there isn't a place for that here. Yeah. Um, there, there just wouldn't be enough work for such a deep specialist, uh, specialism, I should say. Um, there are a few. So for instance, on the transport side, that is an area where um, with Paul Jarman and a few of my other colleagues there, they do have that depth of knowledge and it is much more required for how the museum um, operates, but generally speaking, we need to be a bit more broad with it. Um, but yes, I do have um, uh, quite a bit of curatorial work spread across everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really intrigued by that first degree now. Now you've said it. <laughs> so that kind of mix. So you, did you well, 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 I guess two questions. First one, whereabouts was that? And the second one is, were you thinking about what you might be doing at the end of that, or were you just going into it and thinking these things? really appeal to me. I'm just going to do both and see what happens. Yeah, so it was McPherson College in Kansas, which is the only um, school in the US that offers a bachelor's degree in classic car restoration. And I mean, even doing that was not really what I intended necessarily. Um, I, I took a year out after university, after high school, sorry, um, just because I had no clue what I wanted to do. And one of the guys that I worked with um, had a classic Camaro and that just kind of got me a little bit more interested in it and thought, you know what, why not? I'll, I'll go to this university. Um, and as a, a general education course in my first year, I did a theater course doing set construction. Loved it because it was a bit creative, a bit fun, just something different. Yeah. So I added that as my second major and it just, I just kind of went with the flow. It wasn't really planned out at all. <laughs> um, They're both quite practical though. Yes, in... yeah, exactly. I love working with my hands. I mean, that's the key thing for all the things that I'm interested in. It's about working with my hands and figuring things out, whether it's, uh, well, with uh, in the theater, I, I didn't do that much of the design necessarily. We had a professor who was brilliant at coming up with the concepts. And that's where I came in, that he said, this is what I want. And I had to figure out how to do it. Again, yeah. is kind exactly. of quite similar. Exactly, yeah. In th working in three-dimensional space here. And yeah. there are definitely parallels between yes. both of those things. Yeah, yeah. And then um, with the classic car side of it, I think it my curiosity with particularly 
just kind of learning what people had done in the past. That my, my interest in cars generally is in the earlier cars, pre-World War II and especially pre-World War I, that you know, it was really the Wild West when it came to design, that there are hundreds of different designs for the carburetor pre-World War I. Everybody needed to come up with a way to atomize fuel, but they all came up with their own way of doing it. And so just seeing how this particular person or this particular company came up with a, a solution to the exact same problem was was a lot of fun for me. See, most people um, just see that as really frustrating. Yes, yeah. Just a non-standard, like, why can't I just have one thing yeah. that works? It's but like it's, a, it's a fun challenge, I think. <laughs> or maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment, I don't know. <laughs> so there's a lot, um, lots of practical stuff in that. Oh, degree. absolutely, yeah. So that, um, you were probably 50-50, if not a bit more of um, practical lab work with that. So we were restoring cars as we, we went along, so. Uh, I'm trying to think what the uh, some of the ones that I worked on. So 1936 um, Buick, I did a lot of the assembly work on putting that together in the end. But we did paint work, we rebuilt the engines, transmissions, chassis. Um, I didn't take any of the woodworking courses, but I did the metalworking courses. So right. I have experience in welding and panel beating and and all of that. So it Sounds is really a fun. very very hands-on course, and it's it's a really really um, popular course and a, a well-respected course. So they, the union actually now, they're they're working on a 1950s Mercedes that is going to be shown at Pebble Beach. Right. So it's essentially the most prestigious car show in the U.S., if not abroad. Um, and they've been accepted to show that car, which has only been worked on by the students. Wow. So I didn't have any hand in that car, but it's it's still something I'm can be proud of really and um, for what that program has has done. And I worked for them for a few years. The the first two years after uni I worked right. um, with that program before. So did you get a job directly from the degree? Did they kind of keep you on? Yeah, so I was doing publicity and fundraising um, for the, the auto restoration program. So it was a lot of working with museums and private collectors around the globe to create scholarships and um, get donations of, of cars, of tools and equipment, all the different things to, to keep the program going, but also then just showing off what the program is so we can recruit students as well. So it was a, a lot of hard work sometimes, especially that was during the uh, 2008, nine, um, financial crisis worldwide, so getting yeah. money from Me, people was- especially hard. Yeah, uh, but you were getting to go to some of the the biggest and best car shows in the country, showing off what the students do, meeting amazing people. Um, I mean, I met Sterling Moss when he was showing off some of the silver arrows. So to, to sit and have a chat with him when he's yeah, yeah. sitting in the one rock of the silver arrows, the exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's, and but also getting to facilitate the students having those experiences as well was absolutely brilliant. You know, they're, they're lifetime heroes basically, and they, bump into them in a crowd and then have dinner with them the next night or something like that. So it it was um, it was a great experience. It wasn't the right job for me long term, which is why I only stayed there for about two years. Um, but that's actually what then ended up. Did that ignite your interest in museums? Yeah, so that's where I that was probably the first time I really saw the behind the scenes of museums that we'd obviously gone to museums as children and with my family and such, um, but I'd never really done much um, 
behind the scenes at all. And so they're getting to see the the, the restoration facilities at some of the, the bigger museums like the Mercedes-Benz Museum in Stuttgart, um, but also then friends of mine from that course who had moved on to museums and private collections around the country. As I was traveling, I was able to connect with them as alumni and just seeing what was out there. And yeah, that's that I think probably was really when it kind of clicked. So um, I had the opportunity when I, I left that job, I, I really didn't quite know where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. And I'd actually missed all the application deadlines for, for master's courses in the US. But it's about a month later in the UK. So I quickly put a couple applications through, got accepted at Newcastle. And it was maybe six weeks later, I had oh, sold I pretty much everything. Yeah, it was. It, was, it was only a couple months from uh, ending my job in the States to first day of lectures at, at Newcastle. You're and talking about this in quite a casual way, but like relocating is a massive thing. Yeah. Um, he doesn't even cross your mind. He's like, I'm going to do this. It's an adventure. It's It was only meant to be for a year. And 13 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> but I think with my family, it was um, accepted or I wouldn't say it was the norm, but it wasn't that unusual. Uh, at that point, my brother was living in Thailand. My sister had moved to Alaska. Um, we were just kind of spread out all over the globe Your already. Pretty so. safe compared to yeah, the yeah. <laughs> so then, um, I, I don't think anyone was too flustered by it when I went, and it it was a short term adventure. And I think people have seen how much I enjoyed it and how well I'm doing here. So it's yeah, it's turned into 13 years. Um, so you started the museum studies program. Mm -hmm. And at this point, did you know you wanted to work in museums? You'd kind of committed to that. Yeah, yeah. I and so. did you have an idea that it was going to be collections or were you just soaking up everything that was introduced on the programme? Because uh, I think sometimes there's a, there's a tricky thing that happens there. Some people kind of say, I know what I want to do and it's learning and I'm just going to focus on this and I'm going to ignore everything else. Or Yeah, so I... I think I was still pretty open when I started the course, but over the over that year, it, it very quickly moved me towards collections as the the main direction with it. Um, we did a a hands-on project where we designed an exhibit for the Discovery Museum, and some of the experiences on that month definitely opened my eyes to kind of how how the process works and where my my strengths really are um and yeah i think that's kind of where it, it really shifted in the the direction for collections and just my interest in the objects um i i love being able to see and feel the objects so it's it kind of was a, a fairly obvious or relatively foregone conclusion at that point that, that was where i'd be going so you must have had a, a different pressure from some of the other graduates on that program with you being in the UK, I guess, on a, on a temporary visa or on a student visa. So, so what happened at the end of that? Yeah, so I, um, I lucked out in that at the time there still was a, a post-study visa. So I think it was two years that um, you could stay to find full-time employment. And fortunately I did in that period, whereas even the, the next year after me didn't have that option available to them. So I was very fortunate with that. But um, I was fairly strategic in how I volunteered 
and what I did for my student placement that led to my first job. So my, um, my student placement was here at Beamish and they were one of the main case studies in my dissertation as well. And so I continued volunteering while I was doing my dissertation. So they were very familiar with me. I'd already produced work for them. And then when some projects were pitched, I was right there ready to go, basically. So the day after I submitted my dissertation, they offered me. Um, it was that a short term really role. Well. Yeah, yeah. It, it was great. Um, quite often that placement for a lot of people and, and myself included, the placement kind of ends up being a very long job interview. Yes. If you if you've you know, you've proven yourself over that period of time and then something comes up and they know that you're a safe pair of hands and that you're committed and really interested, then that does convert for some people. Yeah. So the year I didn't that I did my placement, we had I think it was five placements from Newcastle. Yeah. Three of them got hired um, in the summer after we'd submitted. Yeah. And just thinking of the placements that have um, been there under me since we've hired, I think, two or three of those yeah. as well. So, yeah, as you say, it's, you know, you, you have a well, you leg know you up can work immediately. With people exactly. In yeah. And you know the sorts of, of answers that they're going to be looking for. And you can have, well, the, the, the interviewer knows what you're talking about a bit. So, yeah, it, it definitely puts you that little bit ahead of, yeah anyone else coming straight out of a degree to have that practical hands-on experience but also that direct knowledge from the, the hiring people it's it was a, a no-brainer really for me in some of the interviews when i've hired then people sent yeah um so you started the day after your dissertation what was that job so that was a stores move we um we share several storage facilities with Tyne and Rare Museums, as well as a number of local history groups. And we were um, in the early stages of developing our open stores. And so we had to rearrange who was in which room or which building. So I was leading a team of four people to package, move, and do all the documentation for all of those collections. And consult a little bit on the construction of the, the new storage buildings as well. So it was five months of just transporting objects ranging from you know, a, a million pound piece of artwork from the Tyne and Weir collection to uh, horse carriages and some well steam engines even. We had a couple of logos that we had to move to, to put items in behind them. So a very, very wide range of objects. And I mean, some of the biggest challenges with that Obviously, the, the range of objects can, can prove challenging, but because it was multiple different organizations' collections, their document sy documentation systems are different. At the time, TWAM used a different database package than we do. Um, and so how you do all the, the documentation and the location updates had to be different depending on what you were moving and where you were moving it. And, getting the insurance for the different groups and making sure everybody was okay with us moving their objects for them, whereas some preferred to, to move them themselves. So then we had all the um, health and safety implications of them being on an open building site and, and the different things with that. Yeah. So it was a kind of whirlwind five months. It's a really solid set of skills though to get early on because that's a, you know, it's a, a big project and 
core skills that you need potentially for collection. So that must exactly. have made you very employable, even if yes. that was a short-term contract. Yeah, and then familiar with multiple different collections yeah. and collections types. So you've got other, I mean, even though I'd only worked at, for one organization, I had essentially experience from several yeah. um, from that one project. So then, yeah, when that was coming to an end, a, um, a full-time permanent role came up as registrar, um, which essentially it was collections manager, but with the, the project funding, it had to be called registrar. And that is essentially what I've been doing for 12 years, <laughs> 11 years, whatever the math in that is. I've, I've had a few job title changes, um, but for the most part, the, the role has generally stayed the same, just the seniority level kind of keeps creeping up and up and up within it. So. Well, in terms of managing people and in Ma terms of being responsible for projects. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So um, early on, it was a lot of the kind of boots on the ground being the sort of a doer, but the lead doer, if that makes yeah. sense. Whereas now it's transitioned more into the project planning and the, the leadership of all the different strands. So it's more things happening all at once that I'm kind of guiding rather than being there focusing on a single strand yeah. within it at any given time. So yeah. how, how have the job descriptions changed? You said that that was registrar. Yeah, so they, um, they have changed mainly because a lot of what we've done has been project-based. And so what the, the focus is at that given time or what the emphasis from the, the funders are because uh, the the funding for my role, despite it being full-time permanent, it was paid from an external pot of funds. So sometimes it was from the National Lottery um, Heritage Fund, other times it was Arts Council funded as well. So the, the wording of the job description needed to change to match what the, the funding was. Fundamentally, the role really didn't change, but what the emphasis within it did. So um, when I was registrar, there was a, a much bigger element of um, documentation and database management. Whereas when I transitioned into collections project officer, it was more on the, um, the physical side and the logistics side of movement of objects. Um, for instance, where we're sitting now used to be our outside storage area where we had tens of thousands of pallets of stonework, disassembled buildings, uh, large industrial objects that all needed to be moved in order for us to do this 1950s expansion. So I was collections project officer leading on the, the clearance of this space and finding new homes for everything, figuring out what things were. And some of them have been sitting here for 30, 40 years outside and the, the labels may or may not exist or you might have two numbers <laughs> from the whole label. So trying to, to figure out what things are and you know, when it's a, a large industrial item that's disassembled, figuring out which pieces belong to which steam engine and that. So, um, But from what you said, that sounds like something that you would really enjoy. For some oh, people yes. or some types of collections enthusiasts, that would be not an ideal version of collection. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's, I love order, but I also like the challenge of chaos. Creating <laughs> um, order out of chaos. Yes, exactly, yeah. Whereas <laughs> some people would just absolutely crumble or, or just not even want to be a part of yeah. that. Um, and it, there's nothing wrong with that. Their, their focus is on the other end. Um, 
I mean, I see that with the, the database work that it takes a certain type of brain really to, to deal with yeah. millions of cells. That's not and, my brain. Yeah, That's definitely not my I, I can dip into it because I mean, it, I treat it as a mechanical thing. So when you're writing code, it's the same as putting gears and levers together. They're just text gears and text levers that this does this does this. Um, so if I can kind of reverse engineer the the coding that way, I can that make this it is work. Usually, yeah. electronic car. Yeah, <laughs> or I just call upon one or two people near me who have that little bit of extra um, programming knowledge or or whatever it is. But but yeah, the um, even within collections management, there is very much different kind of roles and strands within that, um, especially as you start going to different types of of collections items because our photo archive sits under me as does our library which in some ways they are very similar but also they are very vastly different um, particularly when you start getting into the digital side of it and born digital with the photo archive especially you you have some completely different challenges to try and deal with with that it sounds i mean you you've been here for quite a long time 12 years yeah 12 years, years yeah. and and but it does sound, although the job titles have changed, you talked about the jobs being similar, but because of the project nature of this, that must feel like several jobs that have been connected together. Obviously they overlap, and there yes. are some core things that you're doing, but is that part of the attraction of, of being uh, on a site like this? Yes. Well, like I was saying before, it's the attraction and the challenge of it. In an ideal world... You must like the challenge of it. Oh, yes, yeah. And I'm... <laughs> I'm a bit of a control freak as well, so having my fingers in every pie is also uh, <laughs> definitely appeals to me. Um, but you can't do everything. You're you're only one person, really. And uh, in an ideal world, I would structure the team in more strands, so you have people that are a little bit more of that specialist. I mean, I I will usually back myself to figure something out and make a workable solution. Yeah. But that doesn't mean there isn't somebody else who could come in and make a great solution for that in the same amount of time or probably less because they know um, the, the true depth of that. So like we were saying before, it's you kind of have that challenge to balance between generalists and specialists that you can't go too far either direction. And it, it has to move as the project changes and what the project is and where in the project you're at and such. So... Um, there are times that I I do need to become sometimes very quickly a specialist in something, and then focus for a few days, weeks, months, much more closely on one type of thing like database work or. Um, the... If you're enjoying that, that must be good. And if you're not enjoying it, you know it's going to come to an end. So yes, yeah. That variation so, must be quite attractive. Yes, and that helps mentally to get through projects that end up being a bit of a slog or yeah. whatever you can you can always try and steer yourself from what could drag you down hopefully towards yeah. the the bit that you much prefer yeah. with it i mean it's it's like that with any job and i'm sure everybody has similar no matter what role here course, or elsewhere yeah. Yeah. um there's there are definitely things i dislike about the job and about the museum again everyone's going to have that everywhere they work so as long as you can keep the fun, enjoyable, interesting bits to outweigh the, the challenges. And, yeah. and as you say, I, I do slightly revel in the challenges sometimes. It and sounds like, even when you're <laughs> saying, well, oh, this is, it sounds like 
you're the sort of person that you're quietly thinking, okay, how do we fix this? Yes, yeah, I mean, that's, that really does sum me up very, very well, that I'm always trying to find a process or a system to, to get to a solution. And I sometimes maybe focus too much on the getting there than the, the, the finished product, but... Um, oh, that's part of the fun, yeah. isn't it? But that's where then, if you surround yourself with the complementary people who have that other side and you can make it work between the two of you, that's really what you need. Um, I mean, in an organization, in any organization, but especially one of this size, it's about how you work with each other. And yeah, absolutely. The, the skill sets at any given point. And it's not just a, even a large museum, you know, w would have a core staff in, I guess, recognizable roles, you know, in, in this kind of environment you're working with, build, we can hear it outside, builders, yeah. you know, or huge range of different professionals. Yeah, well, and I think um, the fact that I've had such a, a random work history and just the experiences of all the, the odd things I've done in my life has has been really, really useful here and the connections I've made in doing that. So. You know, I spent a couple summers doing residential home building um, as just a, a summer job during uni. Well, now when I'm talking to the builders here, I know terminology, I can connect with them better and they don't just see me as a, a guy in a suit. Um, and the same when you go out, you know, if we're, if we're picking up a donation from a farm in the middle of Northumberland and you can actually have a proper conversation about his equipment or about his sheep or, or yeah, something like yeah. that, it's it opens so many doors that, I mean, to me, really, that is one of the, the biggest skills for myself and a lot of my colleagues is that um, the lateral thinking and the other influences you can draw upon that are, are so, so useful in the long term and that networking. I mean, really, that's one of the, the key things that I would um, tell students is your network is massively important and that often is outside the industry as much as inside the industry that, you know, there's been times, uh, well, like I was saying before with database work, I got myself into a situation, I had no clue how to, to fix it, but I used to um, do sport with a guy who is an accountant and just send him a quick text, um, I've got a problem with Excel <laughs> and he can sort me out. So yeah. like, he has absolutely no connection whatsoever to my organization or my industry, but five minutes I had a solution to what I needed. And the same with so many others. Um, a friend of mine is a, an engineer and they were working on a um, massive project up in Northumberland and they actually dug up some of the... Um, the original bits that had been put into the site in the early 1900s and they needed to know how much they had degraded so they needed to know what the original dimensions of, of that metalwork was and he gave me a ring just on the off chance we might have it and I had a catalogue from that foundry in Middlesbrough oh, wow. from 1915 and could show him the exact um, drawing of that piece he'd just dug out of the ground and again no industry connection whatsoever, but because we knew each other. Um, that engineering that. link must be there for moving buildings and mm. things like yes. that. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I find the, the, the building moving just mind-blowing. <laughs> I've had it described to me, but I still, just the thought of taking a building down and then reconstructing it yeah. with roughly everything in its 
Well, and each building is so drastically different. Some buildings, you, it's, it's like building with Lego, but each piece is a unique shape. And so they have to go in the exact same order they came down. Whereas others, it's like real Lego and 90% are the same, that a brick is a brick, generally speaking. So if we disassemble a brick building, we don't need to know the exact order that most of the bricks came down in. The, the specials do because they serve a particular purpose in a particular part of the building. So how we document those buildings has to be different depending on the construction technique and then what we are doing with it. Because we, we don't always build the building exactly as it originally existed for many different reasons. It could be that the, um, the original materials are not salvageable or um, trying to meet modern building regulations. If we have office space or um, accommodation space in the exhibit, we then have to meet the modern regs for that. Yeah. So we do have staff members that live in each of the exhibits as part of the security team and part of the um, animal welfare teams. So we have to meet the, the fire regulations for say, those yeah. buildings. So that's why the police house next door is built slightly differently than the semis here because there is a flat upstairs for a staff member to live in. Yeah. So the fire ratings on your ceilings will be different on them. So how we've been able to build these different uh, buildings is different. Uh, we were talking about this before, about trying to um, meet modern access regulations and go above and beyond what um, the access regs are. So in this, in the semis here, we've widened every single doorway so that a wheelchair can get through. So in reconstructing the building, we have had to redesign it slightly. We've also put a lift in, which is very, very different then. So it essentially has removed two rooms from the, the buildings. And so we've had to accommodate that for where the doors are and how we decorate those spaces as well. So there is just such a, a wide range of how we do it when it comes to reconstructing buildings. And I mean, you've got the challenge as well of when you're reconstructing it, what time period do you reconstruct it to? So the, the band hall in the pit village, which we built probably about 2012, 2013, we, we were about 90% done with the building and somebody came forward with a photograph from the time period we were setting it in, which was a little bit different than the 1920s photograph we had. And so we actually had to come back down about six courses of brick to change wow. the brickwork to then make it accurate for that space. So how much of the, the life of the building do you incorporate in with it? Yeah. And also costs. That rebuilding completely accurately is often astronomically expensive. So we, we sometimes need to make compromises or where it visually and physically will not matter to the visitor. So like this building is um, mainly breeze block, then skimmed with brick as opposed to just a, a full brick, brick build. build. It makes no difference to the visitor, but the price tag at the end of the day yeah. is much, much cheaper. Lower. Yeah. Um, so we're always doing that. We're balancing uh, modern versus historic materials as well as building methods. So in the, the Georgian area, we generally are building with lime mortar then. So it's, there's a reason they used it then. We still want to use it now. And 
it still presents challenge. You, you look at the, the thatched roof on Joe the Quilter's cottage, it's very difficult to maintain, which is kind of why it's been superseded for about 200 years now. Um, but the, the process of doing it, the, the skills of doing it is part of what we want to save as well as actually then having that exhibit. So we sometimes make an extra challenge for ourselves, but for a good reason, hopefully. <laughs> so what's, what's next? What, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, so we um, obviously we're filled, finishing these couple buildings uh, with the 1950s, and then we've got a bit of a break before the, the next set of buildings open. So there will be uh, a set of three aged miners' homes, two of which will be um, open to visitors, and the third, well, technically the third and fourth that have been joined together will be our new health and well-being space. So we do it in a small um, building at the farm at the moment, but it's it's a place that people uh, living with dementia and um, people who are perhaps isolated can come together and we, we do activities focused for them. And the construction of the building was made to, to accommodate for that. So people with visual impairment and a lot of other um, access needs that um, we've, we've tried as much as we could to cater to to those. Um, so that's one of the next ones coming. And then the cinema, electrical shop, and toy shop in the 1950s will be the, the big ones on the horizon, probably early 2024, those should be opening. So we've, I've kind of shelved them in my mind for a bit, and in, <laughs> in a month or so, we'll be delving back into them. Uh, but we've also still got then a bunch of developments over in the Georgian area as well. So we're building a tavern, a blacksmith's and a pottery uh, in the early phases, and then also self-catering accommodation. So it is part of a period exhibit, but people can stay overnight there as well. So when I was saying we like to make challenges yeah, for ourselves, that's... we're trying to make an exhibit that also caters to people staying there overnight. And they, unsurprisingly, wouldn't want a Georgian loo that's essentially a bucket <laughs> sitting outside. And, um, so yeah, partial Georgian experience yes. rather than the full. Georgian. Yeah, exactly. So so yeah, in the next twelve to eighteen months, it's really the 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 last big portions of the remaking Beamish project. But then um, the planning ahead. So we're in the early stages of looking at what we're going to do next, and kind of prioritizing whether more capital development or shoring up some of the existing exhibits. Um, modifying and hopefully improving the stories we tell in the different exhibits, looking at access and um, representation. A key one within the, the stories is representation, that we, we have a very well white story that we tell. And um, we, we're, despite the size of our site, are fairly narrow in the story we tell. Um, I mean, it's great that we are telling working class history, but there is so much more and there's so much nuance within that. Um, so revisiting what we tell, why we tell it, and who we're representing and trying to, to broaden that and get more people involved in the, um, the design side and the information gathering. So it's more of us sharing the, the stories that we've been told, as opposed to us doing research and saying, this is your history. Yeah. Um, so it's really kind of democratizing the, 
the stories and what we do and say across the museum. And I think that's kind of a push across the industry as well. So, um, so yeah, we're in that strategic planning phase, very early parts of that strategic planning phase, uh, which for me then is going to lead to a lot of um, policy and procedural changes. So our collections development policy is kind of coming to the end of its current life and um, we'll need to reflect all the changes we've made in the last five to 10 years with Remaking Beamish and then what we're looking at going forward. So we're gonna have to do a lot of kind of looking inwards at what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and writing that all out. And, and hopefully that means more staff members coming in, people doing new roles as well. So having robust policies and procedures to, to kind of help them hit the ground running with that, um, that will be a big thing for me. There's there's a lot on the horizon. Um, it's a huge amount. Yeah, and uh, just looking more widely at the industry and how we will tap into that as well. So there's the um, Towards a National Collection project, which and part of the idea is that all British museums that have online collections can have that in a single database that the public can access. So it should really better facilitate um, public access to collections, but also it should help museums to connect with each other better. So uh, for instance, as we are looking at our collecting policies, it makes a lot of sense for us to know what Tyne and Weir museums, what Bose museums, all the other regional collections, what they collect, why they collect it, and what they already have. Yeah. So if, if we decide, oh, well, we probably need these things, and it turns out Twam has five and Bose has three, there's no point in us collecting it. Yeah. And you know, there's probably no point in Twam having five of them. So if they could send a couple our way or we just borrow them as we need them, it, it should be very good for the industry to, um, to better manage all of our collections and therefore then better use the, the limited funds that everyone seems to be struggling with forevermore, it seems. Um, there's also uh, a trend forming, which I think will be really interesting, but really challenging. I have no clue how we're going to do it, but there's been a movement in, in recent years to, as I was saying before, get more community involvement in how you um, collect your objects and what you collect, why you collect it, and the stories that go with it, uh, which can be challenging in its own right from a um, documentation pr um, procedure direction that it, yeah you need consistency in your documentation but you're trying to invite disparate voices in so how do you get consistency and difference at the same time because if you have those different stories but can't actually ever find them there's is there much point in having them in the first place so that is is a challenge a lot of people are facing right now um it's a good challenge, it's something we need to tackle. But I think the next step of that will be community involvement in disposals. So again, knowing your collections and caring for your collections, you can't collect everything. Every, well, the range of stuff that you're collecting because of the time period yes. here is just huge. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, if you start a new time period or you start a new subject area, you can't just collect the hundred things that need to go into that exhibit to open it. Yeah. You need 10 times that for replacements, for different stories, for um, the research, et cetera. So we've, in the, the 10 years leading up to the start of the pandemic, we were collecting on average um, 
about 10,000 objects a year. Uh, but to, to get the 1950s exhibits and have the depth of objects that you need, this, this house should have about 2,000 objects in it. And next door will again have another 2,000. And the two domestic spaces beyond will each have about 1,500 in it. And then the toy shop and the electrical shop could be anywhere between yeah. 200 and 10,000, depending on um, how the design bottoms out with that one. So it, it, it is a vast quantity of things, but you, you need to be able to care for it. If you stretch your staff too thin or your building too thin, you, you, know, it's, you need to be able to look after the, the items, know what they are, where they are, and make sure they're cared for. And if you can't do that, you probably shouldn't have so many objects. So it's, it is not just being sensible about what you take in, it's being sensible about what you keep and why you keep it. And it, it can present some ethical challenges. It presents some reputational challenges if people see you getting rid of things. And it's sometimes people don't understand why you're getting rid of things. Um, and so if you have community-led disposals, it's, it adds layers of challenge. I think it adds a lot more transparency though, which is a really good thing. Um, I mean, disposals are absolutely a healthy thing for a museum, but it's not an easy thing to do. Generally speaking, it's easier to shove it in a corner and forget about it and hope nobody asks you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, not, it's not good long-term, it's not healthy. And I think there across the industry is kind of an acceptance that this is really something we all need to tackle from um, environmental sustainability standpoint. You know, if you have climate controls on a massive storage area for an object that's never been seen in 50 years and probably won't be seen for another 50 years, should you have that yeah, object? Yeah. Um, and do the objects need it? Um, I think the, the trend for many, many years has been to just go for best practice if you can, but it's not necessary. So if an object doesn't need to sit at 12 degrees, could you have it sitting in a room at 16 degrees? Would it be just as stable in that space? Um, so I think a lot of museums are really looking into that for uh, how they can be more sustainable with their storage, be it in their environmental conditions or disposals to downsize or... Um, Do you think one of the trends moving forward for num a number of reasons, financial, but also kind of climate concerns that collection stores will become shared between more organizations and institutions. It's being talked about quite a bit. Um, we actually just had a few meetings with a number of regional museums uh, in the last few months discussing exactly that. There are positives to it, and in some locations, I think they will absolutely go that direction. One of the key challenges in our region is just location. Yeah, transport that, between yeah, venues. Yeah, exactly. You'd so, offset anything that you saved by driving. Precisely. Stuff yeah, and if you then have staff that are based yeah. remotely or not remotely, you then have all the welfare facilities and all the implications of loan working or yeah. needing to, to have more staff with that. So it's it's something that absolutely should be looked at, and I know a lot of places around the country are. Because um, likewise then as well for um, being more economical with your funds. So if you have shared um, materials, for instance, so 
with um, acid-free tissue, for instance. If we have a massive supply and Bose has a supply and Toyam has a supply and we all have backup, that's, that's just materials sitting there. And it's materials yeah. with a shelf life yeah. as well. Um, it's, it would be nice if there was more funding coming from the national level to facilitate that, because generally what I've seen is it's people having to do it off their own. Um, yeah, yeah. And finding the time to go have those conversations and the, the travel costs in a region like ours where, you know, we should have Museums Northumberland involved, but we probably should also have the Bose Museum involved. They're, what, two and a half hours drive between them? And then, you know, Museums Northumberland, they've got Barrick Art Gallery, which Another hour has to be up there. Yeah. Exactly. So if you're looking at three plus hours drive, to get from one venue to another, it's hard to do something regionally with that. So, um, but yeah, I think that that connected thinking and just communication to to better utilize all the resources, even if it's just small, every little bit does add up very very quickly. And like we were saying before about networking, that I think we're each finding solutions to the same problem. Well, it ties back to what I was saying about the carburetor. We're all trying to find a solution to the same problem. And we, we each individually may have hit on one little thing that we, we all can pick up on. Or one site has the idea, but doesn't have the staff or the materials or whatever, but another does. So that, that joined up thinking and communication, I think is, is really what's needed much, much more. And it's it's actually kind of faded away in the last 10 years. I think, again, with just changes in the, the industry and funding models, um, it's, it's possibly gone a bit more um, singular on the, the approaches yeah, to things rather than... The cycles around things like NPO funding exactly. mean, mean that there's a, a byproduct of sometimes short-termism because it's just about survival. Yeah. It's about, we don't know what we're going to be doing next year because we haven't got NPO. Then you get it and then you kind of, okay, we need to do this by the end of this cycle yeah. and then it starts again. So. Yeah. Planning, it becomes almost like electoral cycles where yes. it's really difficult yeah. to do anything bipartisan yeah. and, and forward thinking because yeah. you're dealing with a four, four year turnaround. And the, the impact of the pandemic, I mean, we're, course, we're yeah. several years beyond basically a lot of, or the, the worst of it, hopefully. Um, but the impacts and the, the legacy of that, some museums were able to actually kind of regroup and come out of it in a much stronger position, and others as you say, just were trying to survive. Yeah. Some didn't survive. Yeah. Um, and how how that is still affecting the, the different organizations is, is ties into that as well. I mean, if you if you got some of the the, the emergency funding during lockdown and after, um, how you ended up spending that, if it was just to pay the, the wages of your furloughed staff, yeah. you it's it, yeah, it, everybody's kind of in a very, very different place coming out of that. And it's it's just added another layer of, of that challenge to what everybody's doing looking forwards. I think most organizations are getting to the point where we're, we're moving away from survival or um, recovery and are really finally able to, to really be looking forwards. But yeah. the, the scars are still there, I think, across most places. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Yeah. I really appreciate your time today. And well, it's super busy, as you can hear. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. So thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, I'll be back in a few weeks to see 
that yeah. opened. So fifties. Fingers crossed, this will be open and bustling in yeah. a couple of weeks' time. And I'll always come into this room and think, this is yeah. where we did this interview next to the yeah. high chair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the glory of it. All of yeah. our visitors have their own stories about the exhibits then. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Yes. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 